Amen indeed. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn in them to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through, uh, 12 through 19. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 12 through Actually, we'll be reading through verse uh, 21 here to conclude the last two uh, verses of this passage. So Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, this passage is a foundational passage when it comes to uh, this, this very important question, where does our depraved nature come from? So that's really the question that's before us. Where does our depraved nature come from? And listen to how the Apostle Paul answers, answers this question. He says, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, may the Lord again bless this word uh, to us this morning. Well, if you turn in your order of worship, we'll be confessing. Actually, just question and answer seven this morning. We will return to question and answer eight next Lord's Day, Lord willing. But question and answer seven. I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. And again, this comes from our Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer seven. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. As you may recall, this catechism is structured in three main ways. Guilt, grace, gratitude. The structure reflects many of Paul's own epistles, the book of Romans. We see this in portions of Ephesians and Titus. And currently we are in Lord's Day 3, and we are in the guilt section of this catechism. 
And this section began with um, uh, instruction about the first use of God's law. Do you guys, and does anyone remember that first function of God's law? What does God's law do first and foremost? Yes, it convicts us of our sin and misery. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that the knowledge comes and reveals our sin like a mirror. We look at ourselves in light of the mirror of God's law and we are exposed. We are shown to be who we are, sinners. The catechism then asks a very logical question. Well, if we look around ourselves, as we peer into the law of God, as we hear in our own consciences that we are sinners, that we are full of, of misery and guilt, did God make us this way? <laughs> and last time we were together, we saw that by no means. God actually created man good and after his own image. And we considered that foundational relationship that God had with Adam, this covenant of works, whereby Adam was called to fulfill the law that was written upon his heart to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, with the hope of that great reward of living with God in eternal happiness. And that was the relationship that Jesus then came under when he took up his work as the second Adam. So then today we come to really the crux of the question and the issue that uh, began a few question and answers ago is where then does this depraved nature of man come? If the law reveals that we are sinners, if we look in the mirror of God's law and we see who we are, then where did this come from? Where's the origin? What's the origin of human sinfulness? Now, what, what, what answer does our catechism give us to that, that question? <clears throat> The fall, right? The fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the beginning of our Bibles. And there is a real mystery here. A mystery that we're not going to delve into, but there's a mystery between how God is sovereign. He is the king of all things. Everything that happens uh, falls under the umbrella of his will and, and sovereignty. Yet, he is not the one who's responsible for sin, nor is he the author of sin. Now, there is a mystery there, a mystery that we will not go into um, today, but it, it should be noted, it is a mystery. And this question and answer, notice how it assumes that we all come from a common stock. It says, uh, from where does this depraved nature of man come? Meaning, all human beings have share in this nature. We have a common humanity, a common... Um, a, a common heritage, as it were. We come from a common stock. And this is all, this problem implicates all of us. And it's important to, uh, to realize in a day and age where this idea of human, uh, human nature as being an, uh, uh, really a category itself is, 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 is falling to the wayside. But we, we come from a common humanity. And the answer, again, has been noted, points us to the beginning. Adam and Eve, and there's this, there's this relationship then, that, which we're going to uh, go into for a few moments now, is this relationship between Adam and his sin and all of his descendants. I mean, that's a real question. How, okay, they, you can say that, that uh, the depraved nature of man comes from the fall of Adam, but how? How is it that Adam's sin has any bearing upon us? So we're going to look at this issue, specifically from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 uh, through 21, uh, focusing especially on 12 through 19. 
and look at this union that exists between Adam and, and all mankind after him. So again, if we put this question of where does the depraved nature of man come to Paul, according to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, his main answer to that question is that Adam functions as our representative. Meaning his performance in that Garden of Eden became the performance of all mankind. The one had legal consequences for the many. Meaning Adam was called to do a certain work and the gavel of God's judgment was going to come down upon his work and either it would be pronounced innocent, perfect, holy, or guilty and condemned. And that verdict would then also be the verdict of all of his descendants, all of mankind. Adam functioned as our representative. That is the overwhelming point that Paul wants to get across to us. And you see this beginning in verse 12 when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Paul very, very explicitly answers that question. Sin comes into the world through Adam's sin. And then we continue to read and say, and, 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 death, uh, and death spread to all men because all sinned. So not only did sin enter uh, the, this world through Adam, but then we see that this, this sin and this death continues to spread from generation to generation. And notice the ground or the reason for that the spreading of death and sin. It's because all sinned. Now, what, what in the world does Paul mean by that? Because all sinned. Some have taken that phrase, because all sinned, in, in, in a way that doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't say that we have some union with Adam, but rather Adam gave us a, a bad example. So, you know, think of our own temptation with sin. There's, oftentimes, we're most tempted when the opportunity and the idea presents itself. Meaning, if we don't have the... Um, the idea or the recognition of a, a certain sin, oftentimes we're not as tempted to do that. So for, for, a for example, as a, for a child, a child may not be tempted to eat the cookie until they're told, don't eat the cookie. The idea is in their mind then, and that's all they want to do is they want to eat the cookie. Well, some have said that Adam's sin was basically putting the idea of sin in the heads of all mankind and, given us a, and, and, and therefore has, has given us a negative example that we all then have walked and imitated and followed. So it's not as if Adam stands in any sort of relationship to mankind other than being a bad example in our family history. And we've all sort of followed suit. Well, that is the, the view that an ancient uh, heretic uh, espouse a Pelagius as he was um, arguing with St. Augustine. He said Adam's sin was merely a bad example that we then all follow uh, in his footsteps. So they would say because all sinned mean, means that we all have just followed in the footsteps of our first father. However, this idea of all sinned is really referencing the idea that we all share in Adam's sin. Think for a moment what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, speaking about Christ. He says, he says that, therefore, one has died for all, therefore, all have died. When Paul says all have died, he's not saying that's contingent upon us actually dying on a Roman cross. He's saying there's a very real sense that when Christ died, we died. 
We share in Christ's death because Christ is our representative. And so Paul continues along these lines in verses 13 through 14. Um, and, and here he, he makes a point that at first, on first glance seems a bit difficult, but it serves his broader point of showing that Adam's our representative. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is the type of the one to come. Basically, Paul's point here is that Adam and Israel both were given revealed revelations of God's law with revealed sanctions, meaning it was very clear. You do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or for Israel, revealed law with revealed sanctions, meaning... Again, Israel was given lots and lots of laws, and it was very clear what would happen if they disobeyed those laws. They wouldn't uh, be the recipients of God's curse. Well, for Israel, they were guilty before God, not only based on Adam's sin, but also based on their own transgressions to God's revealed law. But Paul's saying, what about those who lived between Adam and Moses? those who were not given revealed revelation of God's law and thus revealed sanctions. Because Paul says that sin is not counted where there is no law. So how were they held um, account, held before God, held accountable before God? How were they still guilty before God and still the inheritor of death and, and curse? Well, Paul's answer is because of Adam. Adam, as their representative made them guilty. They shared in Adam's guilt by virtue of their union with him. And then in verses um, 18 and 19, Paul kind of resumes this comparison uh, that he began in verse 12. And he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and then verse 19, he says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Now, Paul says here that Adam's one sin led to uh, uh, that verdict of condemnation for all men. And the, the category of condemnation is a legal category, meaning it doesn't have to do with our inward morality. So when we say we're condemned in Adam, we're guilty in Adam, it's not speaking about our depraved nature. It's speaking to our verdict in God's divine courtroom. When Adam sinned, again, the gavel of God's judgment came down. It was this pronouncement of guilty upon him and all of his descendants, irrespective of their, of, of their nature at this point. One sense you could say that Adam sinned and in so doing incurred this great debt, not only for himself, but for all mankind. Immediately, our accounts were in the negative before we were even born, the moment of conception our account was in the negative. We're guilty, we're condemned in Adam. You also see then in the, this passage this, this comparison to Christ. So if Adam's our representative, well then Christ as the second Adam also serves as a representative for a certain number of people. So you'll see this comparison between you know, as or so, or just as or so as. And, uh, throughout this passage, especially verses 18 through 19. 
So Adam stands in, 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 in the same relationship to all mankind as Christ stands in relationship to his elect. So Adam is um, the father of, of all mankind. And we oftentimes use the phrase in Adam, meaning we have this union with Adam. We are the recipient of his, of his negative performance. His performance became our performance. We are guilty and condemned in Adam. Well, similarly, justification corresponds with condemnation. So that when we place our faith in Christ as the second Adam, we change, um, our representation changes. We're no longer represented by the first Adam. We are represented by the second Adam. And therefore, we are, our, our, our verdict in God's courtroom changes from guilty to righteous, holy, and innocent. Right? Our justification has nothing to do with our inward morality, just as that a sentence of, of condemnation and guilt has nothing to do with our immorality. So to that, our justification has to do with the performance of the second Adam. His performance becomes our performance. We are righteous because he was righteous. We are holy because he was holy. We are innocent because he was innocent. It has to do with that verdict in God's divine courtroom. And this idea of representation is, is um, something that we see in, in our own society. Are there any examples that you can think of of, of, of representation just in, in the common order of, of society or life today? Politics. Politics. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the one having um, bearing um, consequences for the many. The one's performance has consequences uh, for the many. This is something that really shows up uh, throughout history. I mean, even in the ancient world, when a greater king would uh, enter into a covenant or a, a treaty with a lesser king, the lesser king would have to do certain things, supply men to the greater king's army, pay taxes and so forth, and the greater king would then protect the lesser king. But let's say the lesser king doesn't uphold his end of the bargain. Well, that greater king is going to come with sanctions, not only against the lesser king, but against all of the lesser king's people. The one represents the many. This is something that sort of ubiquitous throughout, um, throughout society, throughout history. So this is relationship. There's two representatives in scripture. The first Adam, the second Adam. And based on their performance, we have an, uh, a verdict in God's divine courtroom, either guilty or righteous. Well, you'll notice that our, our catechism specifically talks about our nature. It talks about where did our depraved nature come from. And then it says that our, our nature is poisoned. So the idea of this guilt, this guilty verdict, is kind of in the background in our in our question and answer because it, it specifically gets to our inward morality and nature. This is oftentimes what's referred to as total depravity. And we see this throughout scripture. Genesis 6, 5. Uh, we see that uh, the Lord looked upon the wickedness of man and saw that it was great and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. This is what precipitates the flood, right? Very early on. Every intention of the human heart is evil continually. Or Psalm 51.5, or Psalm 
the psalmist says that, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. This depraved nature infiltrates not only our bodies, but our souls. It begins at the moment of conception. It's pervasive. So what we mean by total depravity is not, is not that we're as, we are as bad as we possibly could be. God's restraining grace is upon us, preventing that. But what we mean by total depravity is that this depravity infiltrates every part of our personhood, body and soul. And it goes to the very core of who we are, the very intentions of our heart. It begins at conception. So then, going back to that question directly, where does this depraved nature of man come from? What we see is that in Adam, when he sins, the gavel of God's judgment comes down and it's guilty for him, not only for himself, but for all of his descendants. And then what proceeds from that guilty verdict is a depraved nature. Our inward morality flows from that pronouncement in God's courtroom. On the flip side, when we place our faith in Christ and we are represented by the second Adam, immediately what happens is we are justified, meaning our verdict in God's courtroom changes from guilt to righteous and innocent. And what flows from that justification? Specifically, what aspect of our salvation flows from justification? Sanctification which is a renewal of our inward morality. So notice in both instances, our inward morality flows forth from our legal verdict in God's courtroom. In Adam, we are first pronounced guilty. As a consequence, all we know is sin. We live according to that, that, that verdict. And so, too, when we are represented by the second Adam, we are declared righteous, innocent, and holy. And then we are inwardly made holy. Inward morality naturally flows from whatever our verdict is in God's courtroom. And this is part of the reason why fear and condemnation is not a fitting motivation for someone who's in Christ. Fear and condemnation would be more fitting for someone who's in Adam. A motivation for um, depravity. But one who's in Christ, their motivation is that legal declaration in God's courtroom. You are innocent, you are righteous, you are holy, because what naturally would proceed from that is an inward change into one who is actually holy and righteous and seeks to imperfectly obey God's law. And thus there's that, that beautiful correspondence between the first Adam and the second Adam what we inherit from the first Adam and thus what we inherit and receive from the second Adam. Guilt and depravity on the one hand and justification and sanctification on the other hand. So you can really summarize scripture according to the two Adams. This is at the heart of what scripture is all about. We are represented by one, uh, by either the first Adam or the second Adam. If you're represented by the first Adam, you have that verdict of, of guilt before God. But when we place our faith in Christ, our representation changes. And we are declared righteous and holy and perfect in God's sight. 
I'd like to, I guess, close with this question. We, of course, didn't choose for Adam to represent us. So was this fair and just of God to do it this way, to have Adam represent all of us? We also have to remember, though, as we looked at last time we were together, Adam, yes, represented mankind, so his performance was their performance, but God didn't just say, I'm going to put you in the garden and in a constant state of probation, and if you obey me, you're just going to continue to persist in that existence, but if you disobey me, then eternal condemnation is coming. He didn't do that. Rather, he said, I'm going to put you in this garden as a test, and you will, if you disobey me, yes, eternal condemnation. But if you obey me, eternal happiness. So there was a corresponding reward that was given to Adam. And if Adam would have obeyed, we know that he would have brought himself and all of his descendants into the new creation. Which, if that would have happened, I don't think anybody would be complaining about God's injustice in bringing us into the new creation because our federal head obeyed in our stead. And so in that sense, it is just because God, in his condescension to man, gave Adam the two options, reward or curse, based on his ability, and he was made good in, in the image of God with the power to fulfill the law. Um, and that's then where we see that this is a just relationship that God entered into with, with mankind.